want to be a part of that on Monday nights, all right? So today, we were on vacation last week, and so today, Lee DeYoung is uh, offered to preach for me this morning, and um, many of you know Lee. Lee and Sherry have been a part of this church for a lot of years, and Lee is one of our elders. He's part of the Greater Consistory now, but uh, he has served as our vice president uh, most recently, um, a few years ago, a couple years ago, and um, he is currently serving as our chairperson for our search team, for our worship director, and so we're glad that he does that. Um, Lee also uh, was uh, recently, last couple of years ago, vice president and president of our denomination, which is the Reformed Church in America. And so he took that big job on, and it uh, really is a big job, a lot of travel. Uh, But he's used to that because for, uh, I don't know, what, 30 years? Uh, Lee served as, uh, with words of hope, and uh, was international director and went, flew all over the world, been to many, many, many nations and countries, has opportunity to preach in those places. And so he's done a number of preaching uh, times here over the past and preached many, many other places as well. So welcome. Lee Dion. Appreciate this uh, opportunity. The last time I had a chance to preach here at Hager Park was 2017, so a little bit rusty. And uh, most of the time I preached in other countries, and so you preach one and then they don't see you, so there's not much pressure. A little more pressure here, but... uh, I'm happy to have this uh, opportunity. When I was asked to do this a couple of months ago on this date, I was thinking, okay, well, is there an assigned text? No, we're in between sermon series. I thought, what should we be, what, what would God want us to hear? And I thought, well, the Sunday after Easter, it really seemed obvious to me that we ought to think about what it means now with Easter in our, just in our rearview mirror Uh, that God has in mind for us and for his church. And then when I realized it was also Cadet Sunday, I thought, how do those tie in? But then seeing the key verse that I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure based on Psalm 119, the longest chapter, 176 verses in the whole Bible. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Certainly the word is the guidance that we go by. And I think the portion of uh, the post-Easter story that just really highlights the word is what uh, God wants us to talk about today, and that is about risen indeed. Now, this follows in the series that Mark did during Lent, uh, the darkness before the dawn, the things that were leading up to that. Start that video, uh, Dave. And then the Easter has dawned, uh, day has come, uh, last Sunday, dawn has come, and then now risen indeed as the resurrection day story continues. So that comes from Luke 24, 13 through 49. Jesus then walked for 40 days on the earth before ascending into heaven. And this in God's overall plan for history, for the redemption of his fallen people, is the last chapter as Jesus has now accomplished the vanquishing of sin, paying the price for sin, his resurrection shows God's power and that life is possible after death, and it takes away our sin. And so now in this last interim before Jesus comes again and ushers in the fullness of God's glory in heaven, his heavenly kingdom, is this time where God's people are witnesses and they are bringing about the spread of God's, of the good news about Jesus Christ, and that's what we're about. So we'll be looking today at the 
story from Luke in chapter 24 after the resurrection morning account, beginning with verse 13 and continuing through verse 45. Before we go into the Word, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Enlighten us. May your word indeed be a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke writes, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things and all that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Uh, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? 
And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to in, the name, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Thanks be to him for his word. So we have two Resurrection Day afternoon and evening encounters. Easter has, is, is, the dawn has come, Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty, and now the day is near the end, and the resurrection news has spread widely. And these are all people who love Jesus, who revere him, who respect him, who believe he is the Messiah, and were surprised, uh, saddened, or shocked when he wound up being crucified instead of being crowned right away uh, as he had entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday. The travelers on the Emmaus Road don't recognize Jesus. They walked three to four hours with him. It's what it takes to do that seven-mile trek in the very uneven terrain of, uh, of Israel. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, presumably, Jesus' body had not radically changed. It wasn't that he was impossible to recognize because later on, he says, look at me, and, and they do come to believe, touch the, the wounds and so forth. So it wasn't that he was so different. He was eventually recognized, and he was not yet the dazzling, glorified body of the second coming that we read about in Revelation where your eyes are blinded. No, this is still Jesus as he walked upon the earth, but their eyes were kept by God from recognizing who he was for a time, and perhaps it was their frame of mind. They had seen, they knew him, they had seen him die in excruciating pain on the cross, and even though they had heard him predict that he would rise, still being human beings, these people, even these people of faith, just couldn't really believe it. And so it was just the farthest thing from their minds that this could possibly be true. They were fearful, depressed, in shock, and devastating. And it was after eating that their eyes sort of opened. We read that explicitly in the account of the group for the Emmaus Road. And then later on when they realized it was Jesus and they went and told the 11 and those who were gathered with them, Again, as they're sitting now, they recognize him, but they think this cannot be. He must be a ghost. This is some kind of mind trick that we're going through. And Jesus kind of proves it again by saying, give me some food. And he eats the food. Say, if I were a ghost, I would not be eating this fish. And so their minds were open to understand the scriptures. And so realizing he has risen, and it's really true, he really is there, they hear the words, kinds of words he had spoken many times before, but in a new light, and it began to make sense. It sunk in this time. He said, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Thus it is written, 
the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Dave, would you put that slide up? And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So this is God's plan of redemption in a nutshell. It's what the Bible is all about. It all points to Christ, God coming to bear the sins of the world. He had to die. So that's point one, the Christ had to suffer on the cross. Point two, he had to rise again on the third day. So points one and two could only be accomplished by God through Jesus Christ, and they had already been done. And now the fulfillment, the final part of Scripture before the restoration of God's people with him in glory in heaven forever and ever is the proclamation in Jesus' name of the forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And Jesus says both in this account in Luke and then again in Acts, you are witnesses of these things. You have seen it. You know it to be true. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father so that you will be able to bear this message. He said, wait in Jerusalem for a little while until the Holy Spirit comes. And when that power comes, you will then be clothed with the power that you otherwise lack to accomplish this final part of God's mission, that you are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This wasn't the first time Jesus had expounded the scripture to them. And he says, shaking his head, Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. You've heard it before, but you didn't understand. And still, as I stand here, you still don't understand. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter to his glory? But finally they do. They see that Jesus has risen indeed. He fulfills what was written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And understanding the scriptures, diving into God's word, requires that we see that this is the main point of what Scripture is all about. In Acts 1, the next chapter of what Luke wrote, he wrote, of course, the Gospel of Luke, the 24 chapters, and then he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which begins with Jesus' ascension, and it does a brief uh, few verses of overlap, kind of like seeing the second part of a two-part TV show. They said, previously on whatever show this is, and you see a few of the highlights. Well, as Luke begins the Acts, he says, previously, and he talks about what we've just read about here. And Jesus is now has appeared before people for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. This proves that 40 days before eyewitnesses that the reality of his crucifixion and his resurrection is unmistakable, incontestable. Unlike others who seek God through other religious traditions, there isn't something nearly this concrete in Islam, the entire religion is built on what was written in the Quran by a man named Muhammad, and he wrote it about himself. And the only thing that authenticates the Quran is Muhammad, and the only thing that authenticates Muhammad himself is the Quran that he wrote. It's circular, but this is not, we don't have scriptures that Jesus wrote. We have eyewitness accounts of the remarkable, amazing things that he did. He accomplished parts one and two of the Father's plan of redemption for his people. And now the third chapter, the final chapter, is people who are his followers, who understand what he has done. We are the witnesses that bring the good news of that to the world. 
So in this last phase of God's plan, as his kingdom is, is now emerging and is coming more and more into reality, the church is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is God's rule and reign, God's redemptive presence, holiness brought down from heaven to earth. Now, there are various times and ways throughout history that God's presence varied. In the Garden of Eden, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, before their eyes were clouded by sin, before there was a gulf between them because of their rebellion, they could walk and talk with him. They could walk naked in this perfect garden and not be ashamed. But then after they gave in to the temptations of the evil one, the serpent, now there was a rift and suddenly they were hiding out of shame from God. And ultimately they needed to be expelled from that place because it was impossible for God to dwell with them in the same way now that they were sinners. And for a time then their descendants uh, wandered about and there was the promise of, of Canaan, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, a kind of restoration of Eden. And eventually that was fulfilled through Abraham, his descendants through Moses, they were led into the promised land. Eventually they built a temple, which was in a special way, uh, a pres the God's presence in their midst, but still not like it had been in Eden. But as their sins accumulated, they no longer could be kept in that place and, and they were driven out by God and sent into, into a captivity, into exile in Babylon for 70 years. After a time, God's people began to return to his ways and they were able to return back to the promised land, to Canaan. A second temple was built, but then through the successive kings and so forth, the, the, group, the people drifted away. So now in this fourth manifestation, Jesus comes and he is a new temple, a new Israel. God's presence on earth is no longer situated around geography or a building, but in a person. And now God's redemptive purpose is experienced since Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven in the church which he has left with his followers. The church and the kingdom are not exactly the same, but they can't be separated. In this life, they are largely overlap. The church is like an embassy of God's kingdom in this earthbound foreign land, an embassy in normal secular life like the embassy of the United States to France is in Paris and so it's a, a sort of an outpost. If you walk into that embassy to have your passport looked at or something, you see the pictures of, of U.S. leaders, you see uh, the flag, you are surrounded by Americans who are the staff of that embassy. You feel as if you are in a way close to being back home but really you're not. You're still surrounded by this other country and that's, that's the way the church is today. The disciples were confused about this at first. They and the religious readers, when Jesus came, they thought this would, that the transition from uh, the suffering that had gone on before into the final deliverance of God's people would be instantaneous and established on earth. Instead, it's a process that began with Jesus coming and dying and rising from the dead and now is continuing. And so the kingdom of this world and also God's kingdom are overlapping for a time that more and more people can hear and that none would be lost that, uh, that God has intended. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is sung about in its fullness or is, is, is uh, 
proclaimed in these verses of of Revelation 11.15, the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There is a kingdom in this world, that's where we are now, but ultimately it will be so much grander. As you hear it in Handel's Messiah, that crescendo gives you a sense of that. So the kingdom of this world is become, and then it becomes much more grand and glorious. We're in that soft period of that, of that song, so to speak, and we're looking forward to that grand climax, he shall reign forever and ever. In a sense, God's kingdom is yet in the future. Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit down on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another, place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It is the age to come. Jesus said in John eighteen thirty six. My kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to establish an earthly throne in, the, in, the, in that time. His eternal kingdom had not yet been fully established. In that sense, Jesus' kingdom is the age to come. But at the same time, in part, the kingdom has come. And we won't make sense of the New Testament until we grasp both of these truths. The kingdom has come and is coming. It has, uh, is coming and has become and has come. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So even as he was casting out demons, he said, this is a sign that the kingdom has come upon you. It's present. Jesus tells the Pharisees in Luke 17, 21, you are looking for the kingdom in all the wrong ways. You want to see an observable king on a throne as in the good old days of David or Solomon. But then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Colossians 1.13 says, Believers have been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the kingdom is coming, and yet it has yet to come. Perhaps one way of thinking about it is how we experience the sun in the sky. On a cloudy day, we can tell the sun is there, because if it weren't, we'd be, you know, how many degrees below zero Kelvin? I mean, it would be frozen to death. There'd be no heat whatsoever. There there would be no light whatsoever. We know we see there's some light. We know that there is some heat, but yet we can't really see it. The clouds cover it. The rain is falling. Or taking it from a seasonal perspective, our experience of the sun, if we walk out on an afternoon in January here in Michigan, 
is it's cold, but you can sense that the, when the sun is out, it, there's a little more of a feeling of warmth, even if the thermometer says the same thing as it would be on, on, on uh, you, you know it's there. You know there's some impact. There's a little bit of melting of snow where the sun is, is, uh, is shining. But that's a far cry from what you experience six months later in July when the sun is straight overhead. It's bright and its heat is intense. It's the same sun but different experience depending on where and when we are. The sun doesn't turn on in the day and turn off at the night. It's constantly uh, emitting enormous amounts of energy, but we don't see it the same way at night. Now, there is a reflection of it from the moon, but it is not as obvious. But that's not because the sun has changed, it's because of our position. And the same thing during the seasons of the year. So the kingdom of God, like the sun, is already in its fullness in heaven, but not all of us have been gathered to be there yet. We are still separated. We are in different places, captured by time, but ultimately we will be brought together. And that reality, which exists already in heaven, will also be in a reality that we will experience because Christ has redeemed us. The disciples, when Jesus was with them just before he was ascending, um, was asked. Uh, they were they they were asked him a question. They said, uh, "At this time, will Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel?" And although there are no bad questions, this one comes close. John Calvin, in his commentary, says there are as many errors in that question as there are words. They misunderstood a lot in asking a question like that. They misunderstood just three examples. They misunderstood the timing. The disciples were thinking, well, suddenly you switch on the kingdom and now it's here and, and it's instantly there. They didn't realize that it is a process that leads ultimately a transition toward that glorious future. Jesus goes on to say, I'm going up into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. In the same way I go up, I will come down at the end of the age, but not now. They understood it only, they misunderstood the domain they think only of a national kingdom of Israel. Is this not the time when Israel gets its king back, they're wondering? Jesus is talking about a universal kingdom. Membership in this domain is not by ethnic heritage, not by geography. In Acts 1, Jesus corrects them. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's not limited by one, to one place. His kingdom is not exclusive to Israel. It is universal. And they misunderstood the nature of it. They're thinking of something earthly and political. But Jesus says it is spiritual and heavenly. Throughout the Gospels, people want to take Jesus and make him king by force or expect him to marshal an army. But that's not what it's all about. Over and over, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom. He says, you're thinking it comes by earthly means. It doesn't. It comes by the Spirit of God. And they expected him to just magically make it happen, but actually it isn't something that we just wait and receive. It is something that God gives his people the privilege to be participants in helping to bring about through the witnessing that we do in other places. The kingdom is ultimately in God's control. We're given the privilege to help to be laborers, to help hasten its coming. But we don't bring it through secular politics, education, humanitarian good works, environmental stewardship, or by cultivating the arts. These are not what make the kingdom. 
uh, the way that these things, uh, there are insp- points of inspiration that as Christians uh, show some, some grace of God that helps to enliven some of these things, but these don't create the kingdom. They don't bring it about. We don't control those things just like we don't control the weather. The kingdom is not controlled by us. It is controlled by God. It comes when and where the king is known. Now, in this part of history, evil is still present. Ultimately, in the fullness of God's coming in the kingdom, there will be no crying, no wailing, there will be no sinning, because everybody's, everybody who is there has been brought there in a condition where we're fully aligned with God, and again, as in Eden, we're able to see him face to face. But we have to understand the differences between the aspects of God's will. In this case, uh, evil still persists. God's kingdom is both present and future, coming and has come. How do we understand God's will in a place where evil still takes place? Has God lost control? Is God unable to stop things? Uh, How does that all work? It's two sides of the same coin. On one hand, God's will, there's a will of decree, his sovereign sway, what he's ordained from the beginning. Matthew 10, 29, 30, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? That is apart from his will. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. In Ephesians 1.11, in him we have ordained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things and after the counsel of his will. But there's also God's will of desire, what he commands us to do and wants his followers to do, but we have the freedom to disobey. In Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everything happens according to the Father's will, and yet in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, Not everyone does the will of my Father. So this is clearly, clearly talking about the will of God in a different sense. Jesus says in John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, or John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the eyes, pride, possession, is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. God's will of decree is the opposite of worldliness, his will of, de- or will of desire. The will of desire is something that we can abide in or not. It differs from the will of decree which always comes to pass. In the Lord's Prayer, it would not make sense to be to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if there were a difference in God's sovereignty and earth and being weaker than it is in heaven. No, God is not more sovereign in heaven than on earth. The difference is that earth and heaven are not... Uh, the difference between earth and heaven is not that God is sovereign over one and not the other. The difference is that every command is fulfilled with cheerful and full obedience in heaven, but that's not yet the case on earth. As parents, you know, not, our kids don't necessarily gladly obey everything we say. Uh, in heaven, that will happen, not because God is forcing it, but because things will have been, people will have been purified, the angels and all who are there will be aligned with his will finally through the process of sanctification that he lays out. Finally, we're shaped by Christians, uh, shaped as Christians, we must be shaped by Jesus' 
priorities. And we must, in studying his word, seek to align our will with that of God. If we are witnesses, we need to be people who have experienced firsthand what we're witnessing about. If we're just talking about Jesus, but we don't really have a commitment to him, well, we're just third-hand telling somebody what we've heard. But if we can talk about something we've experienced, how our lives have been transformed, how we have sensed in a miraculous way the presence of God in our lives, if we have something to talk about because we do know that Father and we do have interaction with him, even though we're not perfect, but those moments have come, that gives us something that we can talk about. If a witness is brought into a courtroom to testify but doesn't really firsthand know what they're talking about, well, it's just hearsay, and they say, well, that doesn't matter. It's not credible. It's only if you have firsthand experience. We need to walk with God, and even though we continue to stumble, we need to have enough experience and interaction with him through prayer and through his word that we can talk about something firsthand that no one can refute, that we have experienced. So may our prayer be, O Christ, may your commandments be obeyed promptly and sincerely. Will you reign in our hearts? May your redemptive presence be felt and known. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our path, a light for our feet. Lord, we pray that as we continue to walk, that we would seek first your kingdom and things would be added to us, not through merit, but through your grace. May we rejoice in your word, that priceless treasure, by constantly striving to more deeply understand it and more wholeheartedly draw closer to you. Help help us, Lord, that your name may be exalted through our witness in Jesus' name. Amen.